not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. Recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au and whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. My name is Kay Wenningall and today I'm joined by my co-hosts Laura Perry and Michael Steindl. Morning Kay. Morning Kay. How are you both? Very well. Are we all well this week? <laughs> yes, very, very well, and we're busy in the studio, so good. <laughs> we are. Today we're speaking with Alessandra Chiramonte, Alex, Austin Smith, and Zachary, Zach Hood, a student research team from Worcester Tech Polytechnic Institute, WPI, in the US. They've just completed a report on the effectiveness of DC isolators and general fire risks in solar PV installations in Australia. And that's been done in collaboration with the Alternative Technology Association, the ATA. We'll talk about this in a moment. But first, welcome everybody. Thank Good you. morning. Good morning. Welcome to Australia. <laughs> Thank you. Can we just start by asking each of you to introduce yourselves and your course of study and why you chose it? Sure. So this is Alex Chermonti. I'm year three at Worcester Polytechnic Institute studying biology and biotechnology, also on a pre-veterinary track. And this is Austin Smith. I'm a mechanical engineering major and pursuing a master's in fire protection engineering as well. And uh, my name is Zachary Hood. I'm a uh, year three robotics engineer with a uh, side study in management information systems and computer science. Wow, quite a diverse <laughs> set of <laughs> studies. Yeah. Got a coven. <laughs> Very mixed up. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> So tell us a bit. also a robotics engineer <laughs> and mechanical engineer. <laughs> so tell us a bit more about Worcester Polytechnic Institute and why did you choose to study there? Um, so I really like the rigorous course uh, courses that WPI has to offer, especially for the career that I will be pursuing in the future. Um, mainly, I had already known it since I was in high school, and it really kind of gravi- gravitated towards me because my dad was a civil engineer himself, so I just kind of pursued engineering myself as well. Yeah, and I think uh, the biggest thing for me is WPI at the time was one of the only schools that had a, a very good robotics program, um, so it kind of hooked me right away, and uh, they have a lot of project-based learning courses, which mm-hmm. uh, really helped me because I enjoy the, the hands-on mm-hmm. um, training and, and learning, which uh, kind of hooked me right away when mm-hmm. I visited the school for the first time. Yep, yep. I think a lot of engineers can identify with that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, so you guys are in Australia working with the ATA as a research group. Um, can you tell us how that came about and what your collaboration is with the ATA? Yeah, so um, as, as part of our requirement for our, our university is we have to complete this, what we call our IQP, um, and it's pretty much a, a social science project. And the cool thing about WPI is you have the opportunity to study abroad and complete this project. Um, so this is something we actually had to apply for last year through our school 
um, through an interview, filling out uh, application and things like that, and then finally got selected um, and to come to the project site here in Melbourne. Um, and then once we were in the project site and we started meeting and met um, all our different sponsors and the types of projects that they offered, and then we had to individually apply for what project we wanted. Um, so ATA is actually one of the sponsors um, out of six. So there's uh, actually 22 of us here in Melbourne. Uh, mm. We've been here working on these projects, and it's pretty cool because we get to collaborate and work with businesses to, to not only complete a requirement for the, us, but to help them out. Um, with projects that they need or projects that um, they would like to see done in, in research and stuff that, um, you know, kind of helps them and helps us too because we're learning but also helping real-world problems too, helping solve those problems. Mm. Absolutely. And I understand that you, you've just come to the end of an eight-week trip, um, so very short timeline. Can you give us a little bit of an understanding of how it's been with these short timelines in Melbourne? Sure. So um, the project itself, we started uh, researching in January. From January to middle of March, we introduced the background topics that we will be discussing and then had to complete our methodology um, once we arrived in Melbourne in mid-March, and we just completed it last week of April. Okay, fantastic. Um, winding up quickly. That's good stuff. Yes. <laughs> so um, one of the main factors you concentrated on, as I understand it, it was solar DC isolators, um, the, uh, the switch on the panels on the on the roof in Australia. Yes. So correct. getting to your research, can you can you tell our listeners about what the components of a solar photovoltaic system are and and where that DC isolator fits in, uh, whether they're on every PV installation and so on. Okay, so um, just to go into like some of the components, you have like the main switchboard, which includes um, the meter that's connected to the grid, and then the AC isolator, and then it goes to the inverter, which also then goes to um, if the system has it, it could have an additional DC isolator right there. But then more cable goes to the junction box, and then eventually more cabling goes to the DC isolator and then the panels on the roof. So. There's a, there's a few other components besides the rooftop DC isolator, and there could be another DC isolator next to the inverter, but it's optional. It's not a requirement, whereas the rooftop DC isolator is a requirement. Okay. So, can I just uh, ask a question there? Is that the same in America, or is it just here in Australia that the system's designed like that? So we don't have rooftop DC isolators in America. Um, they're not specifically mandated or required. However, there are DC disconnect switches um, that are normally sometimes located next to the inverter. Mm -hmm. So, are they necessary? Are the DC isolators necessary? Given, given that you don't have them in America? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we've, we've done a lot of research with this, um, and we've uh, had our time talking with um, different fire services here in Melbourne, as, long, uh, as well as different um, solar installers kind of all over Melbourne, and um, kind of the, the general thing that we're getting to, and I know we're going to get into this more, is... Um, what seems to be the general vibe um, from everybody here is that there is more risk associated with them than there are benefits um, mm. strictly to the rooftop um, DC isolator. Um, like Austin said, there there are some some systems that have them installed next to the inverter, um, but a, a lot of our main focus was on the actual rooftop DC isolator, that mm. specific component, um, as well as other components too. Um, we kind of did a general overview uh, of fire risks um, but that was definitely one of our main main areas of concern. Can you can you expand on that? Can you talk about um, how a home can mitigate these fire risks? Yeah. 
Sure. Um, so first off, we had identified that there were a lot of electrical risks associated with solar panels themselves, um, including sometimes debris buildup by the solar panels and that can catch on fire, um, as well as water ingress into the system itself, which can cause a short circuit. So a couple of the recommendations we have for homeowners is that they um, monitor and voluntarily check their system just to make sure that there's no degradation of the components themselves due to weathering because they are outside um, and exposed to the elements. Additionally, we ask that they monitor their system via the display unit um, monthly just to make sure that their system output is what they should expect on a sunny day because sometimes that can be directly linked to a problem with the solar installations themselves. And then lastly, just after a flood or a storm that they contact a installer or an electrician to um, come and check the system out again. Okay, quite yeah, regular over here. <laughs> right, right. And uh, uh, another big one we kind of dove into a little bit was um, originally when standards were first placed for solar PV systems, um, labeling wasn't really a requirement, so you didn't have to label much of your system. Um, however, Australia has adapted these standards and um, have added labeling to um, the standards, making it so you have to label certain parts of your solar system, such as the inverter, the isolator, put a label on the main switchboard, um, and even on the ma uh, meter box as well. Um, and the thing we kind of found through our research is that um, any system that was installed before this updated mandate um, wasn't required to update their system with labeling standards. Um, so one of our recommendations that we came up with, and this is talking with um, different solar installers and, and fire services as well, is um, we recommend that homeowners update their system um, to the latest standards. So that includes labeling. And this is not only awareness for them, because um, it's important to know where these um, components are in your house. Um, that's one of the biggest things that we kind of discovered is that um, there's kind of almost a lack of knowledge um, in some of the homeowners of exactly what their system is and where it is and the, and the dangers involved with it, where proper labeling can kind of help with that. Um, mm -hmm. And it not only helps them, but it actually aids, uh, greatly aids fire services um, in emergency events. Knowing that there's proper labeling, they can kind of identify mm -hmm. where the components are. And not only that, they can help um, mitigate any additional risks that not only um, brings to the homeowner, but also to, you know, operational personnel trying to, um, you know, help to assess the situation. Mm. Bit, mm. bit like the chemical labels that are mandatory everywhere and so on, so the firefighters know what they're getting into. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's a really good point. And at the same time, it helps homeowners know themselves where everything is. Exactly. Yeah, exactly I, yeah. it, I do remember when we put our first solar system in, 10 years ago or something, we got these very heavy letters from the supplier um, saying, you are a generator now and you have all these responsibilities. And, and it was a frightening sort of letter. <laughs> so I, I perhaps um, might have started the wrong end. I, I launched into about the DC solar isolators, but um, uh, Laura's brought us back to the more general um, thing of your project, that um, your the goal, the overall goal, as I understand it, was the general fire risks associated with PV. Correct. Mm. That is correct. And and these recommendations um, are they going to be made available to the Australian public? So yes, um, the so our findings will be given to the Alternative Technology Association themselves, and from there we've made a fact sheet for them, including mm -hmm. all the content, um, and they will publish that and produce that once a report becomes available. Mm -hmm. Just harking back though to the DC isolators, mm -hmm. have there been many cases of rooftop DC isolator fires in Australia? Yeah, so um, we've, uh, we're have we able to collect some data 
um, from different fire services, um, and we worked in collaboration with a, a few different organizations. Um, in, and although we weren't able to, and it's it's really tough to make a general conclusive statement because mm-hmm. we weren't able to collect all the data. There's just so much data out there. You were working um, with a number of fire departments around Australia, is that? that yes, is we yeah. got in contact with different um, fire services mm-hmm. around Australia as well as other organizations involved. Um, and from our findings, um, there have been a, a, a number of solar-related uh, fires, and a, a number of those have been linked to the rooftop DC isolator. And to kind of put it in perspective, um, the, the number of fires is, is not huge. It's not a, a, a giant risk. There's obviously more areas of concern in other technologies that have greater fires. Um, from the data we collected, um, we're looking at approximately um, 150 fires a year. Um, and like I said, it's, it's really tough to tell because we don't mm. have all the data. Mm. But from what we found, we're looking at approximately 150 fi- solar-related fires per year. And, and out of that, um, our conclusives have come that a good amount of those um, have come from the rooftop DC isolator. And there's also mm. other components involved, and, and there's so many other factors um, and just putting that in into perspective, I think there's over what 1.3 million house to, houses that have got solar. Um, it's one, actually 1.5. 1.5. Yeah. The current statistic is there's uh, about 4 million Australians living underneath a solar roof mm-hmm. as of 2015. Mm-hmm. Mm. But having said that about not not being such a serious problem, I have seen photos at solar lectures and stuff of when they do catch fire. And they're a violent fire. It sort of rips straight through the panels at 6,000 degrees or something and burning aluminium and so on. Um, and they're self-sustaining with the, um, the electrical output of the cells. Um, so it is something to be avoided. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So can we get to the process? Um, tell us about your research process, um, the, starting with the solar installer survey, how it was conducted and which parts of the country you covered, what challenges you faced. Okay, so um, so for as, as far as the instars that we contacted, it was we tried to get a general range across the country, um, but we did face some challenges with that. Um, ATA gave us a, quite a long list of names for us to contact for installers that their members had suggested as well. But ma- mainly, most of them were based in Victoria. Um, we we got some contacts out in Western Australia as well as the Northern Territory as well, but a lot of them were just focused in Victoria and. Not many that like some some weren't exactly willing to like do the survey. Um, when we called and asked, they weren't exactly uh, willing to do it. Um, some were uh, very uh, provo- well, not I wouldn't say provocative, but um, very adamant about like oh no I can't do this. Um, it's just something they weren't willing to do or say. Um, but some of the questions we asked were like the risks added with uh, rooftop DC isolators, their effectiveness, their benefit, um, and then we also like asked if they had any. Um, experience with storage battery installation as well and where they thought that industry was going as well. Mm. Have you Um, hypothesized why they might have been reluctant to be involved in this kind of survey? um, I think mostly because we're a group of university students, I don't think that they were sure what we were using the information they were providing us with for. Um, So they didn't want anything attached with their names, although it was an anonymous survey. They didn't want anything getting back to the company and discrediting themselves. And so you have discussed it briefly, but what were the survey findings? Yeah, so our, our general findings um, 
pretty much what we had them do is we asked kind of the effectiveness of the rooftop DCI solar, the benefit, and, as well as the risk. And we kind of had them rate this on a scale and then go into a little more detail about it. Um, and our, our general finding is that um, the effectiveness and benefit was very low um, in solar installers' opinion, um, and the risk was very high. Um, and as for the reasons for this, there's there's so many. Um, but some of the some of the the key points to to point out is a lot of solar installers believe there's just um, it's just another point of failure um, mm -hmm. to the solar system. Um, you know, you guys here in Australia have the uh, the very intense climate with the the warm weather. We figured that yeah. that out the first weekend while we were here. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so just between the the very hot climate and then um, you know some of the severe storms and and things, you, there's just so many things that could go wrong. Um, and you know, it's it, the thing to say about it is it's not just the rooftop DC isolator. There's other components too um, that could also fall into this. But it's just that since the isolators located on the roof, mm. um, it gets all this weather. And, you know, people have tried, uh, they're now putting weather shields with them, weatherproof shields with them. Mm. Um, and so our general finding is just that between uh, deterioration and, uh, deterioration and uh, water ingress and all these different factors, as well as sometimes when installers are installing these, they're ha they're, it's a dif difficult installation environment. Um, so it's really tough for <coughs> them to... Um, you know, install these devices depending on the type of roof or the type of system. Um, so there's a lot of factors that go into, you know, trying to do the perfect installation of these devices or, or any of the devices, including the panels. Um, so our, our general finding is that um, there's there's so many things that can go wrong with them. Mm -hmm. um, and and another general thing that, that we've come up with um, kind of outside the solar installers talking with fire services is a lot of them um, aren't using these devices um, just because there's so much risk involved with going on the roof during a fire. Mm -hmm. um, so the, there's so many different risks, including roof collapse and all these other things where the fire is um, mm. getting onto the roof. Sometimes roof access is very difficult. Mm. Um, so our just our, our general findings have been that there have been more risks associated with these devices than there are benefits to them. Uh, so that, that's an eye-opener for me that they're actually, the use of them for when there is a fire, I, I primarily thought of them as a safety device Correct. that, um, okay, you can turn off the mains to the inverter, um, the inverter stops, stops drawing current, mm -hmm. but then you still have your up to 600 volts sitting on that um, DC cable all the way down to the inverter right, so then exactly. you get up the roof you turn that off and then touching that cable you're not going to get any arcing or anything right. but um, as well as that you're talking about the possibility of switching them off if, if there is a fire which I can understand would be very problematic yeah. yes, yes. Um, out of out of the four fire services that we had interviewed with there were two that had stated that it was a last resort to use the rooftop mm -hmm. DC isolator mm -hmm. For those of you who have just joined us, you're listening to, listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Show, and here we're here with the Worcester Polytechnic Institute team, um, and they've just completed a report on solar DC isolators, and that's been in collaboration with the ATA. So, in terms of the DC isolator failures, how many were there? Um, so, uh, it's we don't have an exact number. Um, I can tell you that. Um, one of one of the key conclusive findings that we found is uh, in Western Australia um, in the past five years they haven't had many solar related fires um, it's it's pretty few 
uh, I want to say it's around the, the 40 range number of fires. Um, but to kind of put it in perspective, about half of those um, were caused because of the rooftop DC isolator. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also seen um, through some studies we found in New South Wales um, that there's been uh, a good amount of isolator fires and a good amount of those isolator fires have been because of the rooftop DC isolator. Um, we don't have an exact number of breakdowns um, specific if it was the rooftop or the AC isolator located inside. However, there's a lot of speculation geared towards um, many people believe that it's more the rooftop DC isolator. So, so anecdotally, you're talking about perhaps 50% of the fires being associated with the rooftop isolator. Yeah, subject to further uh, hard evidence. Yeah, especially yeah. what um, like I said, more specifically, Western Australia. Um, but it seems to be that the the isolator um, field or the general isolators have caused um, a majority of these solar related mm-hmm. fires. Mm-hmm. Austin, question for you: what, How would you find out about DC isolator product recalls? So to find that out, you would actually go to the ACCC website, um, and they actually have a list of recalls that um, have occurred. Most of them occurred in 2014. I believe there's six, seven recalls, seven recalls. Um, But so if you're um, if you're a homeowner and just curious, or if you're someone that wants to know, you can actually go to the website and see the list of recalls for DC isolators. Um, And that's that's another big thing with the DC isolators themselves is that there, there's been like sort of a bad batch, I guess you could say, um, but there has been these recalls and they have been um, taken off the roofs. So um, you could attribute that to some of the fires that have occurred, but um, you could also think looking forward that potentially this could might not happen because like the bad batch has been taken away from, from the solar panel systems themselves. Mm. Well, that's great news. I think that gives a lot of people a peace of mind to know that there is a website that they can find out more information and they can go to on a regular basis just to make sure that things are okay in their solar world. (laughs) So who else did you interview for your research? So as we alluded to before, we also um, interviewed some fire services servicemen um, and we got feedback from them on what their standard operational protocols are when they arrive on scene of a fire and how those are changed a little bit when they realize that there's a solar PV installation also on the side of the fire. Mm-hmm. And you, you spoke before that there's going, or there has been more regulations in terms of labeling um, in Australia. Uh, what other sort of change of regulation has there been or are yeah. we expecting to see? Uh, are we expecting to see um, your sort of findings promulgated as regulations throughout Australia? Is there any hope of that? And- Changes to regulations. Yeah. So um, one of the yeah one of the big things that uh, we're looking into, and it was kind of like a, a future project that we're kind of recommending, is looking into the uh, storage battery industry. Um, a lot of uh, one of our big findings is a lot of the high feed-in tariffs are ending in multiple parts of Australia, mm-hmm. um, which makes um, selling your electricity back to the grid a little less economical. Mm. Um, so we're seeing. Although kind of still expensive now and, and really hasn't, you know, kicked in, we're seeing a, a, a future movement towards uh, home storage batteries with yeah, on-grid systems. Yep. Um, so that gives homeowners the opportunity to either store their electricity in the battery and then use that, you know, at night when their their system's not producing any electricity. 
Um, and then if they do have the excess, they can, you know, sell that back to um, the grid. Mm -hmm. And then, so going into our, like, some of our results from our survey, um, just asking installers what they had experienced with battery storage installations as well as um, what they thought of the industry and where it's going to head. They, a lot of installers that we contacted said that um, they had concerns with it, um, mainly for the installations and the lack of standards for them, um, mainly pertaining to, like, the different batteries, such as lithium-ion, the flow batteries, um, and not so much with the lead acid because it's been around for a while, but... A lot of them expressed how there is like a lack of standards for the installations themselves and um, some said that they feel like um, going forward improper installations could occur because installers are just going to go with their like going a wing or a flim and just try and mm -hmm. install them themselves um, which could put homeowners at risk because there are no standards and I mean installers are just trying to get get the job done but like going forward, it, it definitely poses a risk, um, and it also poses a risk to fire service as well because they kind of have to like catch up to the new technology, how to deal with like these fires in like different situations, um, and these batteries can pose like different risks. Um, so it's it's just it's a, it's an interesting industry, but just to see how it's going forward, um, it, it'd be interesting to see how it goes. Yeah, especially in the case of um, lithium batteries, if they catch fire, that's a really serious thing. Um, the, have you had any, did you come across any um, anecdotal information about problems with lithium batteries so far? Or? Uh, yeah, so basically um, what we found was that there actually is no, like, I guess standard way to, like, put out a lithium-ion battery fire. <laughs> you don't um, throw water on it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and another another bad thing that comes along with the batteries themselves is, like, if someone, like, tries to put it out, it can actually catch back on, like, catch, catch on fire again as well. So if you think you put it out, it could potentially catch on fire again because it, it still like generates heat, which can then lead to another fire as well. So it's, it's a really complex situation for both sides or all sides involved. So are you saying at the moment there is no solution to this? The, there's no, I guess, comprised solution. Like, like fire services do have like um, ways to put it out, but there is no like 100% effective way to do it, I guess you could say. But your your report doesn't cover any recommendations about the batteries, does it? Or we, it's it's only the um, the isolators and the rooftop maintenance. So we um as as part of our fact sheet, we do um, make recommendations that um, that certain governing bodies should um, kind of work on these standards and and we understand from our research that they are in um you know they are working on these standards now they are drafting these standards up now which is great because you know like i was saying earlier the the industry really hasn't kicked off yet so you know i think a, a key thing is making sure these standards are in place before the the industry um kicks off and and that was kind of through our research what we saw kind of happen with solar a little bit is that there was kind of um you know, solar started becoming big and started to grow and, and had a lot of exponential growth to it. Um, and the standards were a little bit behind. And, you know, um, we can even say through our research back in the States that, you know, we're, we're kind of in the same boat. Um, we're still working on standards ourselves as solar industry is growing. Um, so one of the biggest things that um, we've kind of come to the conclusion is if you can be proactive with it um, and, and have these standards before the industry comes big. It, it definitely can help mitigate a lot of risk and a lot of problems. Um, you know, you won't need any, you know, hopefully won't need any major updates um, and, and won't have any major concerns, areas of concern. 
So on that note, um, your report will be available where and when? So our report will be available through the Alternative Technology Association themselves um, probably within the next month or so. We're looking at getting approval from certain um, bodies in order to get our report published. Okay, and what about uh, a website for listeners that want more information? Do you have any details? So, or is uh, it the ATA? Yeah, so uh, the ATA is a, a great resource, um, and uh, they'll have some kind of way to um, have the report available, um, and especially their, their fact sheet that we've created and things like that. And then another, another good website um, to go to to kind of get the update on the solar industry and um, the battery industry is the Clean Energy Council, the CEC. Mm -hmm. um, they mm -hmm. produce a, you know, especially they've their reports have helped us um, a, a ton, actually, a, a lot. So um, they're really, really good with keeping up to date and uh, producing a lot of publication for homeowners and consumers to mm -hmm. stay up to date. Um, you know, I, since I've been here, I've actually subscribed to their like email <laughs> Um, alias and I get emails every day about really interesting stuff that's related to our project. Um, so you know the uh, you know ATA is a great resource and as well as the the Clean Energy Council too. Mm, fantastic, well. very important at the moment with the advancements in technology happening so quickly. Exactly, and batteries are going to hit the market. Yeah, very, very soon. true. Thanks so much for joining us today, Alex, Austin, and Zach. It's been really informative, and I'm sure a lot of people with rooftop solar would be very interested in the information you've come to bring to us and also your final report. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Thank you Thank for you. having us. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions, which is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. And if you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, you can go to www.bze.org.au and click on podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next week. And just one more reminder about Break Free Australia, um, the Australia's end of the World Series of protests, trying to get countries to honour their Paris commitments and uh, acknowledge that we've got a breakthrough from fossil fuels. This is in Newcastle next weekend. Um, so just look up Break Free Australia on the web and you'll find how to um, get buses and accommodation and everything there. Come and be part of the biggest protest in Australia. Cheers. It's not a product. It's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Time Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Did you miss the latest episode of your favourite 3CR show? Visit 3CR's new improved website. Now you can listen to the latest episode of almost every 3CR show with one click, including music, arts, community languages, current affairs and more. No need to podcast, no need to download. Visit 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. Then go to your favourite programs page to listen. Thank you.